We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not, uh, they did not do as we expected but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, And he who gathered little did not have too little. I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honour the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord but also in the eyes of men. In addition, we are sending with them our brother, who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker, among you, as for your for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you, so that the churches can see it. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you in Acacia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I'm sending this, brothers, in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may uh, be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. 
Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God's love uh, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seeds to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Well, uh, questions of money are always contentious, aren't they? Uh, Thinking about what we do with our money and talking about what we do with our money is uh, often confrontational, maybe less confrontational than it used to be. In the past, uh, it was totally impolitic to uh, ask somebody what their salary was, you know, to talk about salaries. But nowadays, it seems like that's almost, you know, the, the going question. One writer says... And I think rightly so, that we live in an age of conspicuous consumption and self-gratification. And pity the person who gets in the way of that. Given the way that Jesus addressed the issues of money, you'd have to say that it was probably as much of an issue in you know, 10 AD as it is for us uh, in our age and in our day. But you can't help but feel, I think, if you think about it for long enough, that this is a particular issue for the church in the West, that money is in great danger of strangling and killing off our spiritual vitality. So perhaps it's timely then, I think, to look at what Paul has to say in these uh, two chapters of 2 Corinthians about the issues of poverty and wealth. In these two chapters, Paul's trying to encourage these Corinthian Christians to be generous people. He's encouraging the church to be generous. And the background to to these two chapters is really a 10-year collection kind of uh, welfare project. Paul has been travelling around. Uh, By the time the money actually sort of is delivered... Paul had been travelling around for 10 years from church to church, region to region, trying to collect money for churches, uh, for the Christians in Jerusalem. And it seems that the Corinthians had already kind of signed up to uh, supporting this work. Uh, But they were beginning to waver. And so Paul 
as he writes this letter to them, he is encouraging them to continue and to follow through with their generosity. And in doing that, he, he gives us six lessons, I think, uh, in these two chapters about generosity. So first of all, he says that generosity is grounded in the gospel. In this matter of the Jerusalem collection, Paul wants the Corinthian church to follow the example of the Macedonian churches. So uh, Corinth was kind of down here and, and up above was the region of uh, Macedonia. And Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to know what the Macedonian church had done, how generous they had been. Uh, Paul wants them to know because he thinks it will be an encouragement to the Corinthians to be generous themselves. Uh, the story of these Macedonian churches and what they'd done uh, is so beautiful, I think, and Paul writes about it in verse 1. He says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. It's so, it's so beautiful what he says about these Christians. Their joy overflowed into generosity. And even more astonishingly, their poverty welled up into generosity. How does that work? How does poverty well up into generosity? I think Paul means here what he says in verse 3, that the Macedonian uh, Christians even in their poverty, gave as much as they were able and even beyond what they were able, even in their poverty, they gave as much as they were able to give and beyond what they were able to give. They were so keen to be generous that they actually went without some things. And I love it, they were so desperate to give, Paul says in verse 4, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Paul's like, no, you've given enough. No, no, you don't need to give anymore. No, please, please, Paul, please, can we contribute to them? Will you take some of our money and take it with you to the Jerusalem Christians? Uh I was fortunate this past week to be able to go to the Thanksgiving service uh, for Rosemary's uh, mother. And I was so moved at a constant refrain. A number of people said it. Frugal toward herself, rich toward others. I think more than anything else, that was the sentiment that was mentioned the most. What a great commendation of a Christ-centred life. I came away from that funeral thinking, well, I'd like, to be, I'd like to be like Rosemary's mother. A woman I'd met once, but what a powerful life. That even now, her rich generosity speaks to others and encourages others. No great obituary, no state funeral, but generosity that echoes for eternity. Well, we've never met the Macedonian Christians either. 
But their generosity echoes down through the ages and touches and encourages us today as well, doesn't it? Desperate to give, their poverty welling up in rich generosity, Paul says. But here's the thing, they weren't inventing some kind of new way of living. But actually the way that they were living was just the reality of the gospel welling up in their own life, what Christ had already done. Paul says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Why were they so desperate to give? Why were they pleading with Paul to give? Please, Paul, let us give to the Jerusalem Christians. Why were they, why was there poverty welling up to rich generosity? It was because they looked at Christ and Christ who had given up the riches, the treasures at his father's side, entered the, the muck of our world, died on a cross so that we could be rich, so that we could be children of God. The lives of other Christians might be a spur to our own own generosity, but ultimately the greatest spur to our generosity is what Jesus has done. Rich, he became poor. So that through his poverty, we might become rich. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, so that through his mild inconvenience we might become better off but through his poverty through his destitution we might become rich it's so easy isn't it for us to settle for giving out of abundance giving our loose change Jesus gave up his own life in generosity. My mum uh, tells the story sometimes that at certain periods when they were growing up, they would eat dinner as a family and my mum and her sister would eat first and her parents would eat what was left over. It's, It's the other way around to how we think, isn't it? They were so poor that that's what they did. They gave up the necessities of their own life, my grandparents. And so, so easily we have it the other way around. We take what we need and give what's left over to those who have nothing. Paul tells the Corinthians, and God is telling us to be like the Macedonians welling up in poverty to be rich toward others. To be like Christ, he says, who became so poor so that we might become rich. So generosity is grounded in the gospel. Next, Paul says our generosity, in our generosity, there ought to be a kind of equality, a kind of balance. Verse 13, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed. Here's the balance. Our desire is not so that others might be relieved while you are are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. The goal of communism and of socialism 
uh, and of many of the kind of uh, leftover left-wing movements of today is the goal of absolute equality. Uh, if you read Animal Farm, that's the, go- that's the aim of uh, the animals on the farm is absolute equality. All animals are created equal, it's just that some animals are created more equal than others. Their goal is that everybody has the same amount. But that's not the kind of equality that Paul is talking about here. A better word, I think, is balance rather than equality, or maybe equity, or something like that. The Corinthians have more than they need at the moment. So Paul says, well, if you have surplus, give to the poor Christians uh, in Jerusalem. And it might be in the future that the tables are turned. It might be that the Corinthians are poor and the Jerusalem uh, Christians find themselves to be better off and so they are able to sort of return the favour. There's a kind of a balance, not so much in terms of everybody having the same amount at the moment, but in terms of they give, uh, you give to them and they give to you. So as middle-aged Christians, we might help those who are starting out in life who are finding it hard to, uh, to, to kind of get their life up and going. We help out as middle-aged Christians and then in our old age, perhaps people are able to help us. We might lose our job. And other Christians have a secure income, might be able to kind of help us out a bit until we get back on our feet. And then later on, we find that we're the ones with the stable income And other people are struggling to find work and we're able to kind of return the favour, so to speak. There are people in this church, I know, who've received financial help in the past and who say, we've received financial help in the past and the great joy of my life now is to be able to return that favour to others. But the principle that Paul is talking about is not just a local principle, I think we do that relatively well. I don't know, maybe we could do that better. I think we do that well because the people that we're giving to are kind of in front of our face. But when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he's writing to them about a church which is on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. Corinth is not close to uh, Jerusalem. I looked it up on Google. You can actually Google distance from Jerusalem to Corinth and it will give you a map and it will tell you how long it takes to get there. Uh, it's 30,000, oh, sorry, 30, it's 3,000 kilometres from Jerusalem uh, to Corinth, which is about the same distance from Adelaide to Darwin. It's not close. It's far enough away that it's not as though these Christians are likely to bump into each other in the future and say, well, you know what, you gave me a little bit, you know, a few years ago, maybe you could give me some, you know, maybe we could repay the favour now. And yet, so far away, Paul still says, it's fitting that in our abundance we should supply the needs of those other Christians so that in in return they might be able to return the favour to us. We might give to support the work uh, of Graham and Linda, for instance, in South Sudan. And we might never expect to be repaid for that. But who knows, actually? 
Who knows whether or not, in a generation or so, Christians in South Sudan might be sending money to us in our poverty here. It's astonishing how quickly a country, a nation, can turn from prosperousness to poverty. It can happen like that. Read some of the stories of uh, countries in Europe that have been ravaged by civil war. You know, uh, a few years, within the space of a few years, they turn from glamorous, you know, places that look like the streets of France to bombed out shells. Paul says, give and maybe they'll give in return. I think too in terms of the asylum seekers coming to our own country. And I sometimes think to myself, it's a complicated issue, granted. But I sometimes think to myself, who knows whether in the years to come persecution will be so bad in this country that we'll have to flee to Sri Lanka and China and India. And I wonder whether we'll expect them to be generous to us when we have failed to be generous to them. The Bible isn't making an ironclad guarantee. If you give now, you'll get things given back to you in return. But, But Paul is saying that ought to be the pattern of our Christian community, that we strive for this equity, a reciprocity, a kind of balance. Generosity is ground in the gospel Generosity should strive for balance. Next, Paul says generosity should be carefully administered. Perhaps not quite as exciting, but still important. He says in verse 20, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. We are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. It's not sufficient, in other words, Paul says, to say to them, well, we're Christians... So just trust us to do what's right. We don't need to be open and transparent because we're Christians and and so you should just trust us. No, Paul says, we work hard, we work really hard, we go above and beyond to avoid any kind of criticism being levelled at us that we might have mishandled the money. At a church, in our local context, that means that we take steps Uh, to to show, to demonstrate that what we do uh, is above board. So when we count the collection every week, we have two people counting it. It means that we keep records of our accounts and our spending as a church. It means that we set a budget every year and every year we report on a budget. We do that, it's boring and at some level annoying, but we do it actually because it's important. Because being shady and underhanded actually damages the gospel. And working hard to be open and transparent promotes the gospel. Paul says he does it for two reasons. One, he does it for God. Isn't that amazing? Administering books is an act of service to God. He does it for God, he also does it for men for people so that they would see that they are diligent in their administration of other people's generosity. 
Generosity is grounded in the gospel. It strives for balance. Generosity should be carefully administered. Generosity, Paul also says, requires diligence and preparation. So it seems there's this risk that the Corinthians won't deliver on the commitments they'd made to support the Jerusalem church. And so Paul says to them in verse 10... Here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were, not, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. So last year, they were keen. And now he's saying, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. So it's great. I'm glad you're keen. But, but let's actually see some kind of follow through on the commitment And then he says uh, later on in chapter 9, I know your eagerness to help. I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. That is, he's sending some people along to the Corinthian church, some brothers, to make sure they actually follow through on the commitment to give to the Jerusalem church. I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Paul doesn't want to arrive and to have to collect the money all at once. He wants the Corinthians to set aside the money every week. In 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, he writes to them about that as well. He says they ask for advice, actually, on how to be, how to be generous, how to give. And he writes and says, well, a good way to do it is at the beginning of the week, set aside some of that money that you're going to give so that when I come, you don't have to kind of do it all at once. It almost seems like what Paul is saying is that actually collecting all the money at all at once, kind of all at the last minute, is actually the secret to kind of grudging giving. That being unprepared in, in generosity actually leads to kind of bitterness and sourness in it. He says, then it will be ready as a generous gift. If you're prepared, it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. If we don't give with diligence and careful preparation, then it becomes a burden. We all too easily live right up to the boundaries of the money we have, right? So if you have $100 and you don't think about what you're going to do with it, so easily it just just goes, doesn't it? But if you say, all right, I'm going to sit and I'm going to think about this, I'm giving $50 uh, to to this uh, and then I'm, I'm taking that, I'm setting that aside, you don't spend it, do you? You have it there at the end. We're much less likely to overspend if we're diligent and prepared. I went to a seminar recently. Uh, It was a fascinating seminar. It was about a church uh, dealing with the fact that every year they failed to meet their budget. Doesn't sound like a particularly interesting seminar. But they had more than enough people in the church to kind of support the budget. And the pastor said that he looked at the church and he thought, you know, the problem with our church is it's a a spiritual problem. 
uh, that people uh, don't realise they have to give, they're not giving generously, they're not giving sacrificially, and that's the problem. And so they thought, well, you know, let's not just guess, let's survey the congregation. So they asked. People said, yes, we're committed to giving. Yes, we're committed to giving more than 10%. We're committed to giving as much as we can. We're committed to giving sacrificially. Yes, we believe in all those things. What they discovered was the problem wasn't spiritual. It wasn't that they didn't believe those things, that they weren't committed to those things. The problem was practical. No one had ever sat down with them and said, well, you need to think about how much you're going to give. You need to set that money aside and you need to give it. They were committed to the kind of the ideals of generosity, but they didn't have any of the concrete steps in place to actually go through with it. It's one of the main advantages, I think, one of the great blessings in living in an electronic age is that you can, you can commit to doing things and it just happens automatically. That's not unspiritual. You see, we live in an age where we think, because of the romantic movement and existentialism, we think that whatever isn't spontaneous isn't genuine. It's only if we kind of experience some kind of existential angst at the moment of giving that actually it's a spiritual act. But that's a lie, Paul says, because generosity... Generosity requires diligence and preparation. And you can set up money to go to things, to missionaries. Someone was telling me the other day that they have a partnership with, I think it's the Salvo, so that every, every uh, month a certain amount comes out. And, and that is, according to Paul, a great act of spiritual discipline. Because generosity requires not just great ideals but great preparation and great diligence. Generosity is grounded in the gospel. Generosity strives for balance. It needs to be carefully administered. It requires diligence and preparation. Next, Paul says, it leads to more opportunities for generosity. So chapter 9, verse 6, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves the cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God returns what we give, but crucially, not in the way that we expect. Not necessarily, I don't think, In terms of money, the key aspect is God gives us more opportunities for generosity. In verse 10, Paul says, God will multiply our seed for sowing. The seed is, the purpose of the seed is for it to be sown. And Paul says, God will multiply that. I don't think he means that God will just give us more money because he goes on to say, Uh, that God will enrich us, in verse 10, God will enrich us in every way so that we can be generous in every way. I think he's kind of moving here beyond just generosity in terms of finances and saying that when you're generous with the money that God has given you, God actually multiplies the opportunities to be generous in other kinds of ways as well, with time and gifts and love. The more generous we are, the more God gives us opportunities for righteousness and compassion. 
In contrast, the selfish person sows sparingly and reaps sparingly. They're absorbed by their own worries and their own concerns. I, uh, I read this week a quote from a book about a selfish man. It's an interesting uh, little snippet. This writer says, A selfish man is never rich. His day is as long as his neighbours, yet he has no leisure except for his own amusements. No sympathy or concern beyond his own perplexities. That is, he's just absorbed with himself. No strength but to fight his own battles and no money except for his own need. What haunts his mind at every turn is the dread of having too little for himself. It's interesting, isn't it? What's the core concern of the selfish person? What haunts their mind at every turn is the dread of having too little for themselves. It's worth sitting down, I think, with a piece of paper and working out how much we give away of what God has given us. How much do you give away to the work of the gospel? How much do you give away to the poor? How much do you give away locally and internationally? It's helpful to to do that with a piece of paper, to do it diligently and carefully, to get a sense of whether or not we are generous or whether we're sowing sparingly. Do the poor get as much from us as the local cafes? Do our missionaries get as much as the local cinema? Sometimes we feel generous, but it helps just to sit down and to work it out. Because as a friend of mine once said about his own giving, 1% didn't look as good on paper as it did in his head. God wants us to sow generously, not sparingly. Generosity is grounded in the gospel. It should strive for balance. It should be carefully administered. It requires diligence and preparation. It leads to opportunities for more generosity. And last of all, Paul says, it promotes the gospel. Verse 12, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. In other words, generosity isn't just functional. It doesn't just help people's needs. I mean, that's, that's great. That's kind of its immediate purpose. But beyond that, Paul says, it leads people to thank God. It leads people to praise God for our generosity. And you only have to take a moment to think about that to see how true it is. You only need to think of people, the response of people who've received our generosity, received Christian generosity, to see that it does so often lead to praise and to the glory of God. Someone told me the story, a story recently of a mother who came uh, to a church playgroup. She'd been coming along for a while and then uh, I, I think it was she suddenly got sick. I can't remember the details. She suddenly got sick and uh, what happened was the ladies in the playgroup, in the church playgroup said, well, we'll uh, do what we always do in that situation and we create a meal roster and take some food around for this lady. Well, this lady didn't know what had hit her. 
She'd never been part of a community where people did that. She'd never known anyone who would do that for her. John Dixon tells a similar story in his book uh, Promoting the Gospel. It tells a story of two, two people who weren't believers, who through the generosity of the church came to know Christ. And when we think of our generosity in places like uh, South Sudan, I suspect that there are people there as we speak praising God because of the generosity of Christians in Australia and America. People they've never met praising God because of us. Wherever Christians are giving generously as Christ gave to us, the gospel is being promoted for God's glory. Well, there are so many things that could be said about Christian generosity. Paul gives us some practical tips on how to be generous. But at the end of the day, the reason that we're generous is because it glorifies God. It glorifies God, it promotes the gospel, and we give because Jesus Christ gave. Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we might become rich. The generosity of Jesus in the gospel glorifies God, and the generosity of Jesus, which overflows into our lives, glorifies God as well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for your generosity. Your generosity, Lord, to us in dying for our sins and in granting us your Holy Spirit that we might be raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. Lord, we praise you for, our, for your generosity to humanity. Not merely that you died for us, for me as an individual, but that you died for men and women from every tribe and people and language and nation. That people in the far off corners of the world are people for whom Jesus became destitute so that they might become rich. Lord, we pray that the radical powerful generosity of Christ would overflow from his life into our life so that our lives would be lives also of radical and costly generosity. Lord, we pray that our poverty might well up for the benefit of those who are much less fortunate than us. Lord, we pray for those in the world who are struggling at the moment, 
We think particularly of South Sudan where they are on the cusp of a wide-reaching famine. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to serve them and in many other places as well so that your name would be glorified and so that the gospel would be promoted in all the earth. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.